All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Bell Curve. Before we jump in, quick disclaimer, the views expressed by my co-host today are their personal views and they do not represent the views of any organization with which the co-hosts are associated with. Uh, Nothing in the episode is construed or relied upon as financial, technical, tax, legal, or other advice. You know the deal. Now let's jump into the episode. Valora is the easiest way to send, swap, collect, and purchase digital goods on the Celo blockchain. Download the app and start exploring dApps like Ethic Hub today at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another roundup of Bell Curve. You got, uh, I'm still thinking about when you told me about my podcast voice. Michael's one and two, you know, advance. <laughs> Guys, <laughs> welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. To be here, Mike. Good to be here. Mid, mid, yeah, midsummer, Mike, over here with your Florida shirt, ready to. I'm in Florida. Oh, where, you're it's, you're in Florida. Yeah, it's actually he's been on the show. It's Miles. It's uh, it's Miles' thirtieth. So, I'm down here. This is like the year of all my my entire friend group is turning thirty. So they're like five thirtieth birthdays in various places. So, I was, I'm in. I'm uh, Vance and I were at a wedding this weekend. I've got another one this upcoming weekend and one the weekend after. It's My, wedding season. Michael did, what, what was it, 13 weddings, 14 right. weddings last year? 11 weddings last year. Damn. Sounds like what, the beginning of the world. That he's invited to. I've told all of my friends that I'm only showing up to one of their weddings. So you better make it count. I choose. Have you really thought if one of your friends was like, didn't invite you to the first wedding, expecting, you know, the second? I'm not coming to the second then. Yeah. One and done. You get one. You better be really sure. Yeah, seriously. I, like, I don't have that many weekends in a year. I feel you. I was just talking to this about, like, it's, I was just talking to this guy and he's like, oh, it's going to be a crazy weekend. I was like, yeah, we're not going super wild. He's like, after 30, it's not called going wild. It's called going mild. So that's what we're doing this weekend. Go miles. Yeah. Boys in the hot tub. Classic. Boys, boys in the hot. No girls allowed, baby. No girls allowed. Good chicks. Good fellas. Got to bring chicks. That's too. Nice. Nice soak. Nice soak. <laughs> stuff. I, I'm, right, enjoying, I'm enjoying my 30s more than my 20s. Just, you know, just to put it out there. It, it's a chill about. That was my suspicion, too. Seems like 30s. That's a good age to be. 30s hype. Early 30s. Yeah. Real hype. Are you two sub 30 or over 30? Sub 30. Sub 30. Wow. Get ready. We're right there, though. I'm 29. Oh, so yeah. we're pushing yeah, up with the end of it. We talk some crypto? Yeah, before we paint a too vivid of a picture with the hot tub here, let's get into crypto a little bit. Um, should we do so? We've got predictions? Yeah, let's do some predictions because yeah. I think Coinbase earnings are actually going to come out during during this this. Uh, this recording so just to just to refresh people a little bit maybe i'll actually share my my screen one sec um just so we can recap how coinbase did over the course of last year so they break out basically they've got two buckets with different subgroups underneath but they've got transaction revenue and they've got subscription and services revenue Obviously, transaction revenue is the bulk of their business, but Wall Street cares a lot about subscription services because the general perception is transaction revenue is going to trend down towards zero over time. So they really want to grow that subscription services part of their revenue. Within transaction revenue, they break it out in between consumer and institutional. The consumer bucket is much larger just because of the amount of fees. You know, it's kind of an unspoken thing. I guess it's spoken, but the fees that consumers get charged are 
much, much higher retail, uh, gets charged much higher fees on Coinbase than the institute in the institutional part of their client base. And then for subscription and services, they break it out between blockchain rewards, which is staking, basically, custodial fee revenue, interest income, which is generated largely based on their partnership with Circle, the Center Consortium, and then other subscription and services, which is kind of just a hodgepodge of different bets, it's kind of like Coinbase One, things like that. So... And then, and, and then I guess this is, if you look at it in terms of their profitability, so there's net revenue, uh, income and adjusted EBITDA. And I was, I was going back and uh, Brian guided towards, there's a, there's a change in philosophy at Coinbase, which is they basically had a goal to make all their money during bull markets and they were going to break even during these sorts of bear periods that has changed now. And they have since guided that they want to be profitable in all market conditions. Although the CFO did walk it back a little and say, well, we're not committing to that in 2023. We want to see absolute growth in EBITDA. So classic, the CFO kind of walking it back a little. I'd be, I'd be curious. Um, I have some specific thoughts, but I'd, I would love to get your guys' thoughts on, hey, what are you thinking about for, for Q1? How do you think it's going to look? I think there are a couple of things that that I'm looking at, like maybe, and we can break it down. So on the revenue side of things, I would um I would assume that Q1 revenue will look pretty similar to Q4, um, but potentially higher. And uh, if you if you look at like, I bet the user base has actually shrunk a little bit, and I bet you'll see like downloads of the app, for example, are down. But you have higher ETH prices and higher, I mean, higher crypto prices across the board with higher interest rates which I think will drive higher revenue. So like first prediction I would have is higher revenue. Uh, second prediction I would have is on the earnings side. Those are always a little tougher to predict, but I think the, I think it'll look pretty good actually because they had some bad, I mean, they cut a ton of people. Yeah, huge layoffs. Huge layoffs. And um, I'm a, I'm, I don't know like what percentage of their expenses come from personnel, but you got to assume it's pretty high with like several thousand people and they had huge layoffs. So I bet their earnings will also look pretty good. Um, would have to assume that they have a, do a lot of talk about like regular regulatory pressure, both on yeah. the staking products side of things, and then their their wells notice. Um, and I, I bet that'll be like the main focus of this. And then uh, one interesting thing that I bet like main Main Street or Wall Street like won't really talk about is um, the new sources of revenue. But I'd be curious to see how they start talking about like their international futures markets. Um, how they start like providing guidance around the L2, around base. Like that's what I think will actually be the most interesting aspect of this um, that probably Wall Street will skip over. So those are my high level predictions. Totally agree with all those. I would say in addition, just like breaking down this chart right here, consumer I would say is probably going to be pretty similar, if not a bit higher in terms of net revenue from transaction revenue. Institutional, I would imagine is actually going to be pretty far down. Post FTX, I would imagine that a lot of institutions just frankly stopped trading. And I think in Q4, you had a lot of rebalancing and tax loss harvesting that attributed to the 13 million that you see in that in that column. The one that I think is going to be most interesting, which um, won't show up in Q1, but I think will absolutely be present in Q2, and they'll probably talk about it or guide towards it in, in the call, is the actual blockchain rewards subscriptions and services revenue. I think post Shanghai, a number of you know institutional partners um, put ETH into uh, the the staking program that they had, and a lot of that 
I'd say all of that is probably ETH staking. I'm sure there's some other staking opportunities that exist or persist, but I would imagine that in Q2, that's going to jump the most. Um, so whether or not they talk about it, I, I, I don't know, but, and it's not going to show up in, in Q1 earnings, but blockchain rewards is, is the one that I'm tracking the most. Michael, real quick, I completely agree with you on the blockchain rewards and those are denominated, those staking revenues are denominated in ETH. So even if they basically stay constant, the price appreciation is going to do very well for that particular line item. I would push back maybe a little bit on the institutional uh, part of your observation because, I mean, maybe just a a question to you. Obviously, crypto's done super well year to date. Who do you think has been buying? Do you think that's been institutional driven or retail driven? I would say it's probably more retail than institutional, um, but I think a lot of, I, I guess the comparison that I have, well, the comparison that I have is from Q4 to Q1, and I think a lot of the institutions were tax loss harvesting at the end of last year. And so that's where a lot of that activity was driven from. There has been, you know, price appreciation in January, and and I, that was probably a lot of institutions rebuying. So maybe this is flat. Maybe this is maybe it's even up. I don't know, but I, I do think that institutional relative to consumer isn't going to grow as much. Yeah, you might be right. There was there was um I actually I went back and sort of skimmed the analyst notes from from Q four and there there actually was a disclosure there that there was a, a inbound and in interest on the institutional side for Prime, so they were onboarding a whole bunch of customers in Q four. Um. They did kind of walk that back though and say, you know, typically the this sort of relative balance between, you know, re- the retail and institutional part of their business doesn't change all that much. But I don't know. I could, I'm not really sure. I, I, I don't really think retail is back in this market yet. I, I, I feel like you're not. I agree. I, I completely agree with that. The one, the one thing that I will say is that in Q4, late Q4, or maybe it was Q1, they did switch everybody over from pro who was a consumer from pro to uh, advanced trading. And so there have been some product updates that I, I personally have found to be uh, on, our, on the uh, consumer side to be really beneficial. That's kind of what I'm basing in terms of, you know, where this activity is coming from relative to the institutional side. Um, anecdotally also just like institutions were not very active in Q1 because they were trying to pick up the pieces of what happened after FDX. Yeah. Yeah. Coinbase has this, you know, Jason, just in response to your question about, about base, Coinbase has this framework that they use to talk to their analysts and to Wall Street. They call it their 70-20-10 framework. And they say about 70% of our resources and focus is dedicated to our core business. So basically everything that we're talking about, 20% is allocated towards more strategic long-term pursuits. And then 10% is kind of their risk-taking venture type investments within their product portfolio which I actually think is it's easy to understand and probably a do, pretty decent framework for running a business. So yeah. I I kind of agree. I think base is the wild card, but I don't It's kind of, that would be firmly in the 10% bucket. So I doubt it gets much airtime. That, that framework was um, started by Google in the early 2000s. And it, it was all about, you know, over 20% of time or something goes to the end. They, they also work on anything. Yeah. They also did the, yeah, the 20% time uh, for the engineers and 70% is how we're going to make money in the next three years. 20% is how we're going to make money in three to five years. And 10% is how we're going to make money after the next five years. 
I like that frame. I mean, what like I haven't looked too much into Coinbase's financials, but what this tells me is that a they're not leaving the U.S. Like all of this is basically U.S. revenue or U.S. centric, especially on the retail side. And two, you know, like the staking arguments, or or I guess the Wells notice hasn't formally turned into a suit yet, but like they're gonna fight that tooth and nail. Like that's one of their only at least steady revenue segments that has a chance to you know five or ten x. So. I don't know. It, it seems like Brian is trying to set up a straw man for like, you know, we're really going to leave if if forced to. But at the same time, like the math wouldn't bear that out at all. Like if Coinbase left the US, if Coinbase gave up on staking, like I don't know how much of Coinbase would really be left. Just just to reiterate, I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, but like leaving the US doesn't mean they're leaving. Like they're still going to have offices in the US. It means like the technical headquarters is going to be based somewhere else. Like nothing changes. The product is still served to U.S. customers. They still make U.S. money and pay taxes for those U.S. revenues. But it's just that, you know, the technical like headquarters would be in London or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess we'll see. I guess the just the last thing is that that interest expense that's really been carrying their whole services and subscription bucket of revenue. I think it's probably too late. I like I. That USDC DPEG, I think that happened in March. And then there's been a draining of, right? There's been, uh, you know, some seven or eight billion dollars worth of market cap that's migrated out of USDC and into Tether. I frankly don't know how to forecast that because uh, that even that market cap moving to Tether doesn't even necessarily mean that the portion that they generate, they generate their interest on is like they, they generate interest that's uh, on USDC that's custodied at Coinbase. So I don't even know if that blip ultimately ends up impacting that, but it is worth calling it out because that is the the part of their um, that's the part of the services and subscription revenue that's basically been carrying that whole number. And uh, to be fair, to be fair to Wall Street, they've questioned that. I'm not really sure it deserves to be in there. Frankly, I don't know if interest expenses subscription. They're not likely to get more people to put a more principal into it at the size that they've been able to historically, or b you know, take advantage of the same level of interest rates. Just like doesn't feel like that's in the cards, given everything that's going on, you know, with the the regional bank. I guess it's not even a crisis or what, like what, it, what's the name of it? Implosion? Kerfuffle? Like, like, I don't like Kerfuffle. I feel like that's one of the things, this is totally unrelated, but like, I feel like there's like this intentional, and like Michael and I have talked about this before, there's this intentional like memory holding or like trying to keep these headlines out of like Bloomberg or like New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's like how many banks have blown up at this point and like we're still not allowed to call it a crisis. Like just completely crazy to me. It feels like there's some serious uh, just like sheeple hurting going on, at least for the mainstream media outlets. It does feel interesting like when in 2008, I mean, everyone in the world knew that these banks were blowing up and that everything was collapsing. And today you have like the size of the banks blowing up is actually much larger. Uh, and I feel like nobody's really talking about it outside of, you know, FinTwit land. Lesson there. There's a lesson there. I mean, the lesson there is that, like, it's much worse than anybody is actually telling people. Well, I will say, I mean, to- totally agree with all of that. So far, throughout all of this process, there's been exactly $0 lost for depositors. Like, th- there is an element of, like, okay, sure, shareholders are done, bondholders are done, you know, the companies themselves are going through massive layoffs, but our, our consumers are here. Nothing to see here. 
It's a liquidity I, problem. It's not a solvency problem. I don't believe that at all. Like, what? Like, I mean, but, 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 but Michael, in 2008, it was the same thing. I mean, the bank, the bank accounts were backed by FDIC in 2008 as well. Yeah, that's a little bit different because those were investment banks. And like when Lehman Brothers collapsed, there were a lot of clients who lost a lot of money. But I do think that there's an element. I'm just saying your 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 argument that you were arguing that the because depositors didn't get hurt, then it's not like a big mainstream thing. No, 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 it is. I'm saying I agree. I would say, you know, that being said, so far, nobody has lost money. Also, right now, I don't know, like I, I saw the list yesterday of the after hours trading of like 10 different regional banks and PacWest was at the top of the list and they were down like 60% after hours. Um, so like th this isn't stopping yet, but how far can the FDIC go in that stopping these? How far, you know, like how, how deep are the pockets, right? And is everybody- How deep like, are they? How deep? We're not going out. The FDIC insurance fund was before, before all this and I haven't- it's not infinite. It's like $125 oh, billion dollars or something. I guess, you know, what I'm saying is we have staved off depositors losing money so far. I don't think you can go forever. It doesn't look like this is stopping. Something is going to have to give at some point. And the second that depositors start losing money, this is going to be like the biggest news story. I think, you know, people are going to be talking about. I don't yeah. think any depositor is going to lose any money. I think we're just going to print infinite money and just like, I agree. Cover under the rug. Like that's why we're not allowed to talk about it on the internet or mainstream news. Just like you need to go to the real sources to get that information. You know what I'm talking about, Michael. Vance, where's your tinfoil? <laughs> <laughs> There's some corners of the internet where the real news is being reported. Yeah, very friend time these days, man. Oh, bro, you don't even want to know. What's your what's on your what's on your bookmarks list? <laughs> Let's see your open tabs right now. <laughs> there's, some, there's some pretty funny open tabs right now. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> Let's move on. Valora is the ultimate wallet for exploring the Celo ecosystem. Access over 50 different crypto assets and over 30 different dApps for swapping, sending, and growing your crypto, all from your mobile phone. If you want to see real-world use cases for crypto, Valora's dApps page is the easiest way to access a growing list of the latest refi and defi applications, including dApps like Ethic Hub, the first defi protocol to connect real farmers to yield farmers. With Ethic Hub, average crypto investors are earning up to 9% APY by providing secure, low-risk micro loans to unbanked farmers around the world. Support crypto for good and instantly tap into new opportunities using your Valora wallet today. Download the app and start exploring at valoraapp.com forward slash empire. That's Valora, V-A-L-O-R-A, app.com forward slash empire. Let's talk about blow. Blend? Yeah. Blending blur. Yeah, let's talk about blend. So blur obviously is the NFT marketplace that launched earlier this year they just announced something called blend which is sort of the next evolution of nft fi it's a peer-to-peer -peer nft marketplace where there's a bunch of i'll just give you my i mean there are a bunch of features on it i think there's something that's very hard to digest about it because one of the things that it allows you to do is do buy now pay later for nfts and I, a lot of people have had a very negative reaction to that myself included but I think if you look at the design of this marketplace, there are actually some things that are pretty cool about it. 
So basically, it's just a it's just a marketplace, you know, similar sort of to to something like Aave, where you can deposit, um, where you can you know lenders can lend to people who want to buy NFTs and only put down a small amount of collateral. And there's some kind of cool mechanism design about that how that actually works. I think notably they don't rely on oracles for price feeds. So because these are individualized loans and it's not peer to pool or something like that, uh, individual lenders can set um, basically the interest rate that they're comfortable lending at. And the way they get around relying on an oracle is at any given time, the lender can essentially trigger a Dutch option and wherein another lender can either scoop up uh, the, the NFT at a higher interest rate or in the case that no lenders want to step in, they they actually take possession of the collateral. We can dig into that. I think a lot of people have a lot of problems with that and see gamification there. But the, the other thing that I thought was kind of cool about this construction is they assume, I, th- I kind of see this in an evolution in, in crypto market structure where if you have these sort of two-sided marketplaces where you're relying on liquidity, in the very beginnings of like Uniswap, you relied on retail liquidity, you know, for AMMs. And then with Uni V3, kind of like, well, in order to create a better borrower experience, right, kind of the, the demand side of the equation, really, you, there's more complexity that's needed to provide liquidity. And they were totally okay making that bet. And Blend basically came out and said, we are actually basing this, one of the assumptions in this marketplace working, is the existence of more sophisticated lenders who can... And honestly, just hearing them say that, I was like, that's probably the right assumption. I'm actually not sure that it makes sense for retail writ large to just be market makers can contribute passive liquidity. It's hard to be a market maker. So this is just kind of me rambling about about this protocol. But what, what do you guys, what's your guys' take on this? I love that. I love that Blur is out here just launching a buy now, pay later thing for NFTs <laughs> in this market. Like this <laughs> market of all time for crypto, they're out here just being like, "Oh yeah, buy now." Pay. Meanwhile, buy now, pay later is like collapsing. Right. <laughs> My first reaction was, "You guys should have read the room." I aren't they like doing a bunch of volume right now though? Like they have yeah. well they trading have? volume or lending volume. Let's see. <clears throat> I think one of the oh, pump some NFTs like a seventeen thousand ETH lended. Yeah. No, I mean it's done well. The vol- uh, the volumes were I-, I would call it a successful launch. Also, since the launch, like the floors of a couple of NFTs that have been that are like featured on Blend really popped. Like Azuki's ran up from like fifteen, uh, like fourteen or fifteen to like eighteen. Um, and if you if you dig into the data, there's a lot of users buying Azuki's with the buy now pay later. Yep. I I so my guy, I agree with all that. Um, I think the biggest thing in my mind is kind of the only thing that's left in DeFi right now is retail. And like, there aren't any institutions that are stepping in and market making things. There aren't any institutions that are like going to be the initial backs off of liquidity for this ecosystem yet. Maybe it comes back eventually and it could be designed for that, um, you know, eventually. But I, I do think that we're kind of in this place of like, it's really only like crypto whales and retail players that are in this ecosystem so like building that base of liquidity is going to be hard if they can do it that's going to be great but um yeah i also i I think the 30 hour dutch auction is tough because what that frankly means is you gotta be like paying attention (laughs) and that if that you know 
goes off the hours are not that long yeah can can i tell you why mike you you've spent a lot more time digging into this than i have but the reason i didn't like it was actually around their messaging i think blur is really smart and like uh pac-man smart and stuff um and they've clearly like advanced the institutional nft like world in a in a good way and like push competitors in the, in the right direction but they had the, their tweet thread announcement. Um, there was like one of the tweets was like every, I'm just going to read it. Every trillion dollar market relies on financialization to scale. NFTs are no different. Instead of paying a million dollars for a house, buyers put a hundred thousand dollars down and pay the rest through their mortgage. Without this mechanism, almost no one would be able to afford homes. So he's explaining like the mortgage market. And then, but like, I think that's a pretty dangerous thing to do to compare massive leverage and debt positions on these extremely volatile jpegs with the purchase of a home and i think it sets this like dangerous mentality i think people are going to get wrecked on this I, I do agree with that though it's just like a matter of whether it makes sense or is sustainable to lever up any asset in an attempt to buy it so like you know buying a house it sounds very sweet you know you have a family you go buy a house american dream whatever you do that with commercial real estate you know 90 percent loan to value everyone stops coming to the office, you know, all of a sudden the portfolio is zero. So like, you know, is an NFT more like a house or is it more like, you know, commercial real estate? It's probably not similar to either. It's probably just like internet money with a picture on it. Well, yeah. And like, you know, do these things have any fundamental value? That's kind of what the entire assumption of levering it up is based on. Or maybe it doesn't, and maybe it's all just mean value and it'll come back and, and it's a good way to speculate, but... It reminded me a little too much of like, so Affirm and Afterpay and Klarna are like the yep. main buy now, pay later platforms. And they absolutely ripped from like 2019 to 2021. Um, I think there was like 2018 or 2019, there was like 2 billion in buy now, pay later debt. Uh, two years later, it increased 10x to like 25 billion. And if you look at the marketing of a lot of these buy now, pay later programs, they were like, this is really good for gig workers. This is great for young people with poor credit histories. This is great for the unbanked. And it was like a similar kind of like, I didn't like that messaging because you're kind of like preying on those folks. Um, and it ended up completely backfiring for those people. And it, in reality, it was great because of ZERP. Yeah. You can get a zero interest loan on a mattress or like, you know, the, all, I, I, I do find it interesting that financialization of PFP NFTs, particularly right now, is what they're going after. And, and to Vance's point, there is no fundamental utility. There is no fundamental value. We created these things so far and they have value in a, in a secondary marketplace, but it, it will lead to some people, you know, overextending and getting burned. And that frankly, I think is, is probably not worth going super headfirst into this ecosystem right now. Um, but maybe there's enough liquidity, maybe there's enough liquidity on the lending side to actually make this work. That, that's kind of the thing that I, I keep going back to. Let me just set up the like overall time. Like this is kind of a philosophical discussion. Like how much financialization is enough financial? Like some amount of financialization is okay and good, right? Like to use the, your example, Jason, of like the mortgage, like America had a social contract where they made a decision where owning a house is a good thing. That's not the case everywhere. Like there are other countries where everyone just rents. We were like, we think it's a good thing to own your home. And basically everyone should lever up and buy their home and that'll be okay. So like we all kind of thought that was good, but then like, where's the line? Because now it's not small community banks that are lending to, you know, to people in their community. This rate, there's going to be none of them left. 
But really what happens is those are more like small distribution centers where these mortgages are originated, they're packaged up, and then they're sold to people in Japan. And it's like, well, maybe that you're because you have a larger base of people that are willing to buy those mortgages, you get a better price. But is that really a better system? But, it, yeah, it's a philosophical question at a certain I mean, so the two points coming out of that are, number one, a house is a fundamentally useful asset. Whether or not you live in it or somebody else does, someone's going to be living in it, most likely. And number yeah. two, the other reason why homeownership became such an American mainstay is because overall, the, the residential uh, housing market has gone up over the last 50 years, and that became the largest asset for most families. And that I think is, you know, if you, if you don't own and you rent, like you, you miss out on that wealth creation possibility over the last, you know, multiple decades. So I agree. There does need to be some financialization. It's interesting to have it be in this ecosystem. I, I guess maybe the point that I'm trying to make is, um, the messaging around it and comparing it to mortgages is to Yano's point is, is not something that I, I thought enjoyed. that was bad. Let me make I one more. Financial, in my mind, financialization equals good in my mind. It, it unlocks a bunch of opportunities and that's fine. And like, if you think that NFTs are just like, are you either think that NFTs are just tokens with pictures, in which case like, yeah, you should financialize these tokens. And then on the other side, like you think that NFTs are this really valuable thing that like creator, in which case, yeah, financialization is also good. It was the messaging. And um, it wasn't just that messaging too. It was actually like, there's this strategy that they did that I thought was like, also not great where you can um they're incentivizing loans on the platform through these things called lending points that where, where the more lending points that you get the more the more of a the next airdrop you get and in the mortgage land which we're like if you just keep going with that analogy there's this thing called reg n regulation n that um it's known as the like mortgages acts and practices it's the mortgage advertising rule basically and it prevents a bunch of like over over promoting and over advertising uh and like doing deceptive advertising and mortgages and to me when i read this i'm like you are incentivizing people to like do more that than they should mm -hmm. on this platform to farm well, the next airdrop oh i agree with you but i my understanding of their point system was that they changed around so they're incentivizing the lenders not the people who want to borrow an NFT buy now pay later. So they're incentivizing people to provide liquidity and extend credit to people who want to buy. Because I think they're concerned of everyone, first of all, either gaming, like playing some kind of game where you set an unreasonably high, you know, um interest rate and then people default on it. No one wants to pick it up. They scoop it up for a reasonable price and dump it immediately. That's the game that everyone has already outlined. But I think what the, they want to do is they want to provide a liquid market of sophisticated lenders and those points are pushing people to, you know, not pull out basically and do that. That was my understanding of those points. Mm, yeah. I mean, it's the same way that they incentivize the trading of NFTs as well, which is you get points or whatever you put out an in, in offer, not when yeah. you buy something. Mike, do you feel comfortable sharing the, um, like what you're explaining to me about the difference between like lend lending and borrowing on like Aave versus Compound versus Blur or on Blend? Do you... Well, it was, it was kind of, I mean, what I was trying to, I think it's the, look, I, I actually agree with everything you guys are saying. I just think it's important to provide like some kind of devil's advocate. Um, because I really do think like, so I, I like, for instance, I think being able to buy and sell stocks is good. Do I think it's great that Robinhood basically pushes people into options because those are the highest margin products. And that's what the order flow that Citadel wants to buy. I don't think that's good. So there's like some, there's a bell curve 
of financialization that I think is basically except you see what I did there. Yeah, but um, like like I feel like this argument does not actually hold water when you just have like other examples. Sugar is bad for you. Should we allow children to drink orange juice? Probably not, but that's like part of a balanced breakfast and also part of like the food pyramid. Like that's not great. Every asset class benefits from financialization. Like why shouldn't crypto? Like have you seen the terms of auto loans? Like interest rate interest only auto loans that like jack up and and refinance to the to the you know whatever the the new interest rate that the Fed decides on. Like those are pretty toxic and poisonous and not only do you have like the industry for the loaning of that give the industry for the buying of lo- those loans and chopping those up and syndicating those to pension funds. So like, I don't know. I feel like crypto always gets put in this kind of like ideological corner of like, you know, you shouldn't be doing those things. And those arguments just like never hold water if you look at the real world. I I agree with that. I And you know what? Even as we're here, because the fundamental question that we're asking is, do NFTs have value? And if NFTs have value, I think we would all say, then you should be able to, some degree of financialization is, you know, right and good and acceptable. Define value, though. Like, does a car? Yeah, well, sure. Like, I think that's that's the place. But, like, what if you're, like, not doing anything with your life? Like, and you're just, like, speculating on this car because you want a cool one. I don't know. I agree with the analogy. And, and, you know, six to eight ounces of orange juice in the morning is is probably healthy for you. But, you know, 60 to 80 ounces of orange juice is probably going to give you diabetes. I agree. I think it's kind of everything in, in moderation. But, it is because, you know, when we're here sitting and saying, uh, is, is it right and good to be able to take out a loan basically to buy an, an NFT? We're like, oh, I don't know about that and sort of making a value judgment there. But none of us question the ability to take out a loan on, say, Ethereum or Bitcoin or something like that. And 99% of the world would say that's completely unacceptable level of risk. And that's not right and good. So do I think the marketing was a little aggressive? Do I think this is probably going to end in tears at some point? Probably. Do I have a philosophical problem with it? No. And the the other thing that we haven't even really talked about is just like close your eyes and imagine it's like a year and a half from now, the, the bull market is returning. You have two options. You can either buy your NFT at full price or you can buy now, pay later. Mm-hmm. It's, I don't, it, our value judgments aside, people are just going to do that. I, or, it's just, or, yeah. You have two options. You can sell your NFT for some asset for ETH, or you can borrow against your NFT to get some liquidity on it. Like these things should exist. It's just a question of, you know, how pervasive they need to be. You're always going to have people wanting to borrow against any asset that they own. I think the question is like, will there be lenders for that requisite, you know, borrow flow? And this actually makes it possible. So I'm all there for expanding the use cases of crypto. I feel no moral high ground over anybody borrowing or trading or being degenerate. Like, if you want to do that, go light yourself on fire. I might even lend to you to go do that. But like, you know, it is what it is. I, I don't see the problem. <laughs> Just make sure you got the notifications turned on loud. And yeah, make sure you got paid your yeah. day. Like, don't like go on a camping trip after. <laughs> yeah, that. no. I mean, Either thirty hours is not that long. I have one more one more question on this before you guys move on. So the way that buy now pay later works, the monetization scheme in like e-commerce, is I I don't think it's a Zerp thing, Michael. My understanding of the way it works is actually the you get a zero percent APR loan because merchandisers are actually subsidizing yeah. that cost because yeah. the amount like your average I forget what the unit is it's the amount that you spend on one average session or purchase or something like that goes up three or four times. So 
Yeah, yeah, but 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 the but the platforms still have to pay the full price. So like the yeah. firms, you know, put the money up and they borrow right. to be able to make that interest free loan. So that that's uh, horrible. Enough. That got it, got it. Um, so my my question to you guys would be: Do you think there is ever a situation where Blend goes to basically charges NFT collections when they do their initial mint or drop or something like that to offer buy now pay later? Because just look at the impact that it's had on Azukis and Maladies and Punks. Like, if I were a blend, I would be like, hey, we can, we are, we've got this market of people that are going to offer loans against your NFTs. And that's going to offer, that's going to result clearly in a higher floor price. But we got to get a little something, something. I, I think like the primary asset issue is issuer uh, facilitating leverage trading effectively of these NFTs is probably a non-starter. I think it's something that you'll see like the cloak and dagger like governance, you know, yeah, we're going to vote this in, we're going to, you know, get it going. And I think it's going to be really good for projects until it's really terrible where there is no way that you can short NFTs right now. This is probably like, you know, theoretically, if I were to go off and, and try to short NFTs, I would probably try to find an NFT perp to short and then I would try to immediately go off and get at the spot NFT, whatever it, it might be. And like literally in the, in this, uh, like the hard part about shorting crypto is that like, especially if it's a closely held coin, like you can't make people give you their spot so that you can sell it into the market and, you know, close out your short on the perp. What you have to do is you have to actually like go off and source that and horse trade. And it's extremely difficult. But on this, like you can literally just take people's NFTs. So I think like you're going to see these things pump and then you're going to see someone smart like the GCR of NFT trading. Who knows? Uh, it's like a smaller cottage industry, but somebody's going to like take a shot at all of these that are, that have all this you know, potential borrow flow that you can take and use to short. So double edged short, to say the least. Who's going to be the George Soros of NFTs? I mean, you're going to make like a hundred dollars doing this stuff. So like maybe the risk like never going to be worth it, but. Like, I don't know, the the peak valuations of like Board API Club and stuff like that, like that would have been extremely juicy. We had some guy in the last cycle approaching us trying to get all the uh, Top Shot NFT cards so you could short them. It was like this like rinky dink operation. It like didn't end up working like this is this actually makes it possible, which is pretty scary. The so, NFT we had a rough year, so, you know, <laughs> they did. They did. But I don't know. I, I sort of, I, I kind of am with you. I look, I, Jason, I agree with you to just bring it full circle. I think the way that it was marketed and something, even after all this discussion, find out pay later for NFTs. I feel pretty confident that retail's not going to be on the winning end of that. But I also think you kind of have to choose. Like, do you want a, a free market where people are allowed to make these decisions? Or do you want a market of TradFi where, you know, they, it's regulated all the way up to here and this is what you're allowed to do versus not and i i kind of maybe there are people out there that have thought in much more detail about me and maybe that's a false trade-off but that's kind of what i think of um always i do think that do whatever they want that's my my personal philosophy yeah same i i do think that we're going to see a lot more uh nft x d5 financialization opportunities like there's going to be more amms that launch there's going to be you know, fungible tokens that are associated with these collections that's going to, you know, beget liquidity on these AMMs. Like we're, we're going to see a lot more financialization of NFTs. And frankly, like broadly, philosophically, I, I agree with all of that. 
And yeah, it just depends on how you want to approach it and who you're trying to attract. Yeah. Do you guys want to chat briefly? I know, I think Coinbase earnings is going to come out soon. I want to check the results, but CRV USD launched this week, which was, which is pretty cool. So I think we covered this a little while ago when we were talking about some of the new, new stables that are getting launched. So I would put go sort of in this bucket, but this is kind of the convergence of a couple of different protocols that started out with separate business models, but are now converging. So I would put MakerDAO in that camp and Aave and Curve. But just to like do a level set on what Curve is and why they're doing this and, and how it sort of makes sense is Curve's obviously a stable coin swap. Uh, you know, sort of like Uniswap, but instead of, you know, they're kind of volatile assets, they'll only do like stable coins or pairs of something that are similar in price. So something like Steve to ETH and they kind of dominate that pool. And they've been talking about launching a stablecoin for a little while. We're recording this on Friday the 4th, and it looks like the first loan for CRB USD went live. And the other, the, I guess the, the two things to note here is it's going to be a revenue driver for them. So yeah, you basically have to borrow, and there's an interest rate that ends up getting paid, which would be pretty good for, for Curve because it's an alternative revenue stream. You could also imagine, I think the reason this sort of makes sense, and one of our analysts, uh, Dan Smith, is super bullish on this, is you can, right now, there's kind of, there are these, uh, st- it's the, the um, I'm blanking on the name, the, the three pool, basically, with USDC, USDT, and DAI. You could imagine a situation where Curve basically puts its own stablecoin in there. And what's kind of interesting is there's kind of this, similar to Coinbase, where there's going to be the race to zero in terms of fees. I think the general sentiment is that there's going to be fee compression in DeFi as well. If you had a pool where CRV was one of the assets that was in that pool, you could drop the fees, the trading fees to zero because you're earning interest income from the borrow of CRV. So it's kind of a way to subsidize going to going to zero cost. The, the other thing that's uh, sort of cool about CRV, this is a little little wonky, but it's an innovation in the liquidation mechanism. They have something called Llama, which is a little bit of a a new twist on an AMM. So the way that uh, liquidations happen historically is there's an oracle, and once your you know your loan to value or whatever crosses over a, a certain threshold, then you basically just get liquidated, and some searcher understands that and they liquidate, and there's a there's a price for doing that. I my general understanding of this, and I've only sort of dug in high level, is that when you reach a certain like health check or health health threshold, part of your possession gets sold off and it's replaced with Curve, the stablecoin itself, which is actually pretty interesting. It's a much better user experience, so you don't just like you know tick over a certain threshold and your po- entire position is liquidated. It's a pretty cool pretty cool mechanism. So. That was a lot of me talking. I don't know how much you guys have dug into this or what your thoughts are on this new wave of stable coins or, or curve in general. I typically, my I have a really high level view of this, which is that um typically been pretty bearish on these like protocol based stable coins. But like when, like I was kind of uh, ragging on Aave's stable coin Go when they were, when they announced it. Um, but this one, seeing how they've structured it, makes me think that they're just going after maker and that they're going after die basically um and like if you i mean i've spent a lot of time at maker and like it's uh i mean i think, I think maker i think maker 
move on some things and like they've gotten like a little bit stagnant and uh there's some like key people who have left maker recently and i think curve sees like this huge opportunity to go after maker right now and that's my like zooming the multi that's what i would assume is the multi-year vision here is to go after maker I think the liquidation mechanism is cool. You are basically warehousing the risk of that liquidation within the curve stablecoin itself, but like it certainly would help. Uh, and it's certainly something that Maker doesn't have in the worst case scenario, where instead they just start printing Maker, which is like really like a bad idea. The lending, liquidating AMM thing that they have. Yeah. That, that's and it continuously problem. liquidates and audits. Yeah. But it, it does it piecemeal so that you don't have like, you know, Hey, maker liquidators, like everyone wake up. Like there's a 400,000, you know, eat slug hitting the market. Like, is anybody prepared to bid? And frankly, when all that stuff was happening last year around like, uh, I think the bad ones were in June, the liquidations, like seeing those come down the pike of like, you know, there's a hundred thousand ETH about It's just like, how is the system going to deal with this in a time where there is very little trad file liquidity? Very little, you know, retail liquidity, whatever. But it did work perfectly, frankly. There was not another Black Tuesday or whatever that incident was. Um, that's that's because we had uh, someone on the Oracles uh, putting the thumb on the scale. I don't know if you remember that. Yeah, I, I do remember that. There was, uh, yeah, there were some fortunate Oracle delays. Um, but, like, not having that is good. I just kind of wonder, like, you know, Curve is now emitted a lot of its own token there's not like a ton of rewards to go around like a lot of them already being claimed by like the people who are doing the curve gauge farming like how do you bootstrap you know from zero to i think maker has what what's like makers tbl seven billion or something five billion billion, two of that's you know usdc probably three billion of that is eth like how do you actually meaningfully take share the reason that michael and i still use maker is because like we know that it's battle tested I don't, I don't think the, the appetite to put large amounts of ETH into new code bases is super high right now. So I think that's kind of my question is like, how impactful is this really? But yeah, I mean, the, the Curve team is, is smart. It, you know, if nothing else, like they'll, they'll figure out a way to, to game it effectively. To- totally agree with all of that. I think the only kind of perspective that I would include um, this past week, we've spent uh, some time with... Um, some regulators and talking to them about you know what their priorities are especially from a crypto perspective for the next six months i think the the sentiment coming out of those conversations is there's going to be a bill that includes and and mostly features stable coins as the the primary kind of component of the regulation i i'm not saying that you know i actually agree with you know this is an interesting model the new liquidation methods are are awesome it's going to be really difficult for a decentralized stablecoin, I think, to integrate into a legal framework in the U.S. going forward. And so when we're talking about how do you break through, how do you get to the size of Maker, Maker already has the, distri- the, the distribution to be able to have DAI in all the places that it already has it integrated, you know, like Coinbase or any other centralized, um, you know, providers. It's just going to be an uphill battle, I think, after this bill gets released. And I think the text is going to get released in the next couple of months. Um, it's just, it, it will be difficult, I think, uh, to be able to compete with some of the more centralized stablecoins, unfortunately. But that that's kind of the stable point, broad stablecoin perspective that you know, became more apparent this week. Yeah. I have a question. This is a little in, in the weeds of, of Curve and their whole tokenomics and everything. But, you know, I think people initially sort of got excited by this because 
kind of what I was mentioning before. It's a way to subsidize uh, fees on some of their some of their pools, and I think people generally agree it's going to be a race to the bottom. The question that I have for you though is sort of curves tokenomics are sort of like Bitcoin in that you sort of need the number to go up. Like they they are they live and die by liquidity, and the way that they direct liquidity to their pools is by emissions. And what they don't they have a just like Bitcoin they have a deflationary supply schedule. I think it's like every year it's like 15% lower. So they want to have basically a constant amount of, you know, dollar denominated value that they can use to incentivize liquidity into different pools. And so they that's why the the gauge and the lock rate, that VE vote escrow mechanism is super important because they want to incentivize people to lock that curve up and not to go and sell it onto the open market. I I feel like if they have their own sort of horse in that race, then doesn't that, I feel like that takes away an enormous incentive for other people to lock their curve. I, I'm sure, I'm sure this is a really smart team. I'm sure they've thought about this, but I feel like it does risk destroying the golden goose kind of, or the, the long game that they're playing. So I don't know if you guys have thought about that. Well, the, the thing that I have thought about independent of this, uh, launch is, you know, curve launched what, when was it August, 2020. And if you remember, the, the largest lock at the time, which gave you the most vote escrow curve, was four years. So yeah. we're, we're coming up on a year left of where I would assume most people put their locks. And so not only is it going to be hard because you've got you know less uh, supply and less incentives and number has to go up for you know th- those incentives to stay, you're going to have a lot of unlocking of the token itself in, in not like that long of a time. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out as well. There's a lot of those cases, like not just not just Curve either. Like if you look at Arbitrum, if you look at Optimism, like there's going to be multi-billion dollar unlocks kind of like by early 2024. I think a lot of these are are running towards product market fit and like token economics that makes sense before those unlocks hit. And, and frankly, like my expectations of where the market is going, I think that a lot of these things might peak before the cycle itself peaks. Like you're, you're kind of early at this point if... Yeah, you know, your unlocks are coming in six months and you don't have things figured out. Like that's how I would at least uh kind of think about it. Yeah. They're a smart team. I really like the stuff they ship and generally how they think about stuff. So Yeah. No. That's cool. I don't know. All right, what do you guys want to has uh has coin have earnings come out yet for Coinbase? Oh, I was just tracking, I haven't seen anything. Maybe we could talk a little bit about um I mean, I know we've talked about this before, but sort of in more degen sort of land here, we've got uh, Pepe coin, which <laughs> depending on, I guess, how you're allocated is the gift that get, keeps on giving or it's like the bane of your existence. But that thing just keeps running. I think the market cap on it is 700 million or something right now. Last time I checked. And the market wants things to rip right now. It just people wow. people want it. People want it. That's why I take crazy. Yeah, that's nuts. It's really, it's done a lot more than I thought it was. It was going to, for sure. We talked about that being an indicator. I'm curious, like, do you view that as just kind of noise, and the markets do what's going to do? You take no, away from that? Not at all. No, you need to read deeply into that stuff, even though it seems so silly. And Grant says you got to pull up your fortune account. You got to run out right here. <laughs> you got to look. <laughs> Would this would this have happened in Q4 of last year? Absolutely no. not. No. 
Q3, yeah. probably not. Q2, certainly not. Like, it's been a year since this. I was, was going to say, I don't know if post-Luna this happens in 2022 at all. Totally. And, like, you're seeing these big LST farms. You're seeing these, like, L1, you know, meme coins. And, like, there's also a reason why you don't see this on any other chain. ETH is the only chain with enough liquidity for this to possibly happen. Um, and, like, look at the burn. Today is 8,000 ETH burn. You, you got 10K spent on uh, ETH transaction fees overall today. Like, you're probably looking at a scenario where if we get back to, like, four or 5,000, we're going to be breaking all-time high fee revenues pretty easily by, like, the start of the run. And so, like... You know, people are starting to, and it's not just about like the trading volume. People are starting to self-organize into like these little like groups that are searching for ten million dollar market cap meme coins, and you know the hot ball of money is turning itself over and it's going around and round. And like that's kind of what you need. You need like a sentiment recovery, and you need a credit recovery. And we still haven't seen that, but like we're starting to check the boxes off. And like I talked to some guy who works at a different fund over the weekend, and they're more of a trading fund. And he was like, dude, like my dopamine receptors are just so shot. Like I need something to trade like at all times. Like, you know, Pepe has been like really like big for me. It's like, really, like, you know, take a walk around the block. Um, but I think it's big that people are starting to do this stuff. And even like the NFT five stuff on, on blur and blend and all that stuff, like that's great too. And guess what? It's just burning a bunch of ETH. So I'm here for it. Also, NFT Fi is only an ETH L1 phenomenon, just for the record. Yep. So thanks for the comment. Not to uh not to throw a whole wrench into this uh perspective, but one idea that I was contemplating recently is okay, so you know, the the model is the model where one eight one five five nine you burn ETH as opposed to keeping it, but we're on track to burn about a million ETH, give or take, maybe even more than that over the next year. What if that was distributed back? I mean, it's going to be more, but uh, two million. Two might, I think two might be too much. We'll see. But what if that one to two million ETH was distributed back to stakers? That would immediately put the staking rate somewhere in the like high teens, I think, based on 15% being staked right now. Um, kind of an interesting concept of increasing the staking rate uh, instead of, you know, burning it and having it be deflationary. I, th- I think we're going to see major discussions on this. I, I listened to uh, Anthony Sassano's uh, Daily Gway podcast, like basically every day, but uh, he is kind of like a good temperature, you know, thermometer for like what the ETH core devs are thinking. And he would like, you know, there, he's thrown out a few like different tidbits over, over the past like couple months. One is like to what your point is, is like, it's 80-20 right now in terms of what gets burnt versus what gets given to stakers. Should it be 20-80? So that was like one interesting one. The second one was a cap on the amount of ETH that's allowed to be staked to maintain a, a minimum APY. So that's another. And then the third is um, like the the formula for the actual inflation is the square root of, I don't know. It's just some math that I, I don't have on, on hand right now, but it's pretty complicated. And he his thought process is like, you know, should that be higher or should it be lower or should the equation be different? It's like the square root of some number and I'm sure it has mathematical significance, but it doesn't mean anything to me. And so like, you know, I think those are going to be interesting uh, concepts to go through, especially over time. Because like what happens if ETH scales 100x, you know, and the fees don't scale 100x, like we're going to need to start making changes. And 
like there's a long roadmap for Ethereum. We're going to be at this for probably next five years, you know, building the protocol, tweaking the economics. I don't, I don't think we've seen the last in terms of like ETH economics and the potential changes to go in there. Yeah. Coinbase earnings. Are we going to make it? <laughs> I, don't I think, think I, I just saw. But I didn't get my yeah. hands. Nah, I think. What happened? Oh, nice. I'll be here. Revenue beat. Not surprising given the the volatility in the quarter. I, it, Jesus, Carvana shares jump. I mean, the block did well. Coinbase did well. DoorDash didn't do well. Sorry, the block. The block. Shopify way up. Watch yourself, Bams. <laughs> what did uh? Wait, what? What outside of the? So it was a beat on revenue. How'd they do on um, trying to find it on their site? Yeah, I'm trying to find it too. Beat on revenue. Little short on trading volume. Yeah, no, could you share your screen? I just typed in Coinbase revenue on Twitter and I'm scrolling through all the Watcher Guru. <laughs> We're at the point of the market where it's only like the Watcher Guru. All right, I got it. I got it. I got it. All right, now Mike gets to share his screen. Here, one sec. I haven't looked at this yet, but I'm going to share. All right. So, I mean, at first glance, this looks a lot better on the, so net revenue came in at 726 million, only a loss of 79, which is huge. And on, I, you know, humanly talk, that's amazing. I mean, there's a huge headcount reduction and it didn't show up immediately because there's severance and stuff that you have to pay, but. I'm sure some of that. Well, wait. So, so sorry. Go back. Go back. Um, the biggest number there is the adjusted EBITDA. Yeah, two hundred and eighty-four. Damn, that looks. Yeah, they so, got a lot. A lot of this is non-cash cost. Yeah, man. I my hope is that when all these tech companies, you know, when interest rates get low again and they really reaccelerate, like I just hope they don't hire all these people back. Like, just like learn your lesson, like. No, no more like yoga and smoothies. Just like run a profitable business. Yeah. Wow. Bad, bad take on my part with the institutional. Yeah. Atrocious. So, inst- I mean, to, but to your credit, I mean, it's not like it. It didn't. You know, it's but it's twenty two. It's there. It's like basically their their biggest real source of revenue outside of transactions. Look at that interest income, baby. Quarter quarter of a bill. Thank Jay Pal. Yeah, I was going to say. Yeah, I mean, so blockchain rewards makes sense because ETH is up in price. Yes, I would imagine that this jumps a lot more in Q two. Yeah, I would guess so too. You know, I one thing that I've been surprised about, not to distract this too much, is you know CB ETH was one of the big liquid staking providers that enabled withdrawals post Chappella, and they've lost market share since then. It's been, I think they're down something like 2% and Rocket Pool has been crushing it. They had their Aura upgrade, I guess, and that's actually made a, a pretty big difference. Um, but yeah, I think Lido and Rocket Pool and, and Frax were basically the the big winners. And I don't really know why. I mean, basically just Lido, but the other two or three are cool also. But, you know, like the amount of like 
<laughs> I was having like 20, 30, 40,000 ETH days. Like, it's cool that Rocket Pool added 3,000, you know, two days ago, but like, time to pay. Market shares up. I mean, the market shares up. I know it's always easy that you bet on the incumbent or whatever, but like, it is very hard to hold like 70% plus market share for a long period of time. I think it's a tough thing. I'm not advocating for Rocket Pool out here. I mean, I like Rocket Pool. I actually think the Aura upgrade is super interesting, but um, I think yeah, I think the long tail of LSTs is going to be a major narrative. I've said this before on this on this podcast, but it's going to be LST summer in my mind because you've got. I agree with that. You've got like five to seven, you know, very very small at this point uh, LSTs that I think are going to grow relative in size and. There's going to be all this infrastructure built around like indexes for LSTs and you're going to have like liquidity pools for LSTs. I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, how material they become, but my guess is that's going to be a big narrative. Yeah. I mean, the liquid staking category just, liquid staking just passed DEXs in terms of total value locked. For the first right. And like now all the LSTs are going to be in short order, the ETH asset that is put into all these DEXs. Like I, that's why I kind of think Frax is like an interesting model, albeit much smaller. It's like it just kind of internalizes all of the endogenous yield that exists because of the LSTs on you know their stablecoin. I'm sure they're going to build their own decks, and like you can do that. I think the the question is like, will the regulators ever like just you know say nope and like kind of put a stop to it? Um, but it, like these things have a ton of different avenues to capture value, and so to Michael's point, I do think there will be some of them that. You know, like, as much as I hate this, there will be, like, a magic internet money liquid staking token. Like, you know, like, Frog Nation rise up against the evil venture capitalists, and who knows if it ends well or not, but that will definitely be a narrative. So, coin, the stock is up, like, three and a half. Yeah, not not a, not a ton. Not a ton. I, I think a lot of people expected this type of an outcome. I agree. And I think they, they want to hear what Brian and crew have to say about regulation. I think it's going to be relatively large. Once again, I'm I, like doubling down. I, I think that we're going to get some text in the next two to three months. It's going to be something that's sensible. It's going to be bipartisan in the House. And then it's just going to be a question of whether or not it can get through the Senate. Uh, Yano, you asked earlier about the analysts not asking about base. Do you think that Coinbase wants the analysts to understand base at this point? What did I ask about the analysts not asking about base? I thought you mentioned at the beginning of this, like that was part of the, you know, oh, oh, part of yeah. me. Oh, oh, I see what you're saying. Um, do I think that Coinbase doesn't actively doesn't want Wall Street analysts to understand base? The reason the thing I'm asking is this isn't this isn't a Mike Bolito original thought. I'm sort of borrowing this from someone who planted this idea in my brain. I don't want to blow up his spot. Is uh, is I you know the one negative potential downside of base is it might end up drawing a lot of scrutiny to what's going on in centralized sequencer land on the roll-up layer. Oh, oh. And I'm not really sure if you want that many eyeballs on that. Frankly, um, like you know. If you start looking I don't at think, the uh, sequence, yeah, starts looking don't look too I don't think close. You do, you know. Don't look too I, close. That's the I, thing. I, I think regulation, like, some of it's going to be good. Some of it's going to be like, yeah. you can't do that anymore. Yeah. Right. 
it'll be black and white. Some things will be white. Some things will be black. But I do think like one of the things that I think there, so there's going to be two things that come out of this. Number one, uh, what? <laughs> Number one, uh, how do you go from being a security to a commodity is going to be an interesting thing that gets defined. The other one is what does decentralized mean? Is it, you know, five nodes, three nodes, 21 nodes, who knows? I'm, I I don't think I can share this now. I'll tell you this after we talk before we can do a lame podcast thing to say, but there's a new, there's a new, uh, there's a new L2 coming from like a big company. And, uh, hell yeah, I think, I think we're going to start seeing a lot of, a lot of, a lot more like base, like things launch where companies are like, oh damn, smart idea. Uh, let me go launch an L2 with one, with a fully centralized sequencer. All right. Sounds good. Down. I mean, if you have money transmitter licenses, have at it. I think Coinbase. I agree. There's many such cases. I mean, companies you know. with money trend. Yeah, exactly. So, mm. you know, it it is funny. Sometimes we're off in our own little crypto land doing mechanism design and stuff like that. And I've been getting pretty deep into the weeds and, and at MEV this season. I saw this take from this guy on Twitter, Ceteris Ceteris Parbus. I can't find the tweet. I was just looking for it, but it was like the unpopular opinion. But MEV is going to be solved in an off-chain way it's called going to jail <laughs> I, I kind of agree with him it's like yeah dude like what's all this mechanism designed for and preventing sandwiches like you will go to jail that's called front running that we got a law about that had so we've seen a few big uh mev players stop doing it over the past couple weeks not going to name any names, weeks. well they're they're like okay. the they were the largest block builders um and just like well known tradfi names and they just stopped um and they've stopped doing some forms of mev but have continued doing others and so like from the outside looking in it feels like a lawyer got to them and was like some of this is not okay to be doing not to I mean the the other piece of news that happened this week was um Nate from OpenSea officially charged man yeah I saw that what do you guys what do you guys think of this I mean, he did something wrong. I think that's clear. And like, you know, you shouldn't do that stuff in general. Um, I think just reading through the the Financial Times article, like the sentence is like, you know, maximum of 40 years. Like, does the punishment fit the crime? It, he made $50,000. He hasn't been sentenced. Um, right. But I like I've met him once. I think Michael might have as well. He seemed like a pretty like nerdy but nice guy, um, and yeah, I mean it's obviously illegal to do that, but it was such a small amount that going to jail for forty years feels like a just like a lot for that type of uh, violation. I mean, it, he he got convicted of fraud, which is a felony. Like even yeah, no matter what the sentence, the specific no, no matter what the sentence is, like that that is that's that's tough. I think he also went to court at like probably the worst time sentiment wise for crypto. Exactly. Like you're not gonna get the benefit of the doubt with, with generally anybody. Yeah. But I think he I, I think he goes to jail for less than a year, gets probation and a fine, but he still has a felony on his record, which sucks. Right. So. Yeah. And like dude being for what it's worth, I do year. think I do think what he did, like you're the the definition of insider trading is pretty clear. Like you're the head of a pro of a product for a marketplace. There's a level of responsibility that comes with that title. 
And in that role, you know exactly what's going on and, and, and you know what you're doing there. So therefore, I think what he did was wrong. I think the punishment is wildly unfair. And I think both of those can be correct. And I also think that the regulators here are looking in like the, so the wrong direction here. They're like going after this 50K thing or 60, however much it was. And like, meanwhile, there's a bunch of other stuff they should be looking at. So. Oh, yeah. You know what? That's my take. I think you should just, we should, I, you know, no commenting on like what he actually did, which whatever. But I think it's just important to have some empathy. Like everyone knows his name now and that he did okay. this. And I think that's, because to be honest, okay, like the jail will, would definitely suck. The felony, if he works in crypto, I'm not really sure that impacts his job prospects, to be completely honest with you. But I, I, I you know, but I do. <laughs> Come on, Mike. Are you going to hire him? Yeah. Uh, wow, fair point. He should I don't know. I've met the guy. But I've just, I don't know. I think it does suck to have your name just like splashed all over like that and to be the poster boy. Because that's when he, he's like the poster girl, and that just sucks. Yeah, that really sucks. He's gonna have a lot of time to think about, you know, just that one fucking click of the the mouse. I, I think it was more. I think it was more than one, but yeah, he, there was a few. He was a repeat offender, but yeah, I don't mean, do don't this, do that. This isn't just NFT land, by the way. Like there was a there was this um person this uh woman named Anne Hurt. Herbert, I think it was. She was a, a Nike employee for 25 years, and she was, um, I think, she was flipping Nikes on the secondary based on like because she had access to the memos that the CEO was going to send out. I'm probably getting the story really wrong, but she got fired, and I think she might face some time. Like that's illegal, and she was sen- selling them on uh, on StockX or something like that. If it feels like it's an unfair advantage, don't do it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, always. Speaking of unfair advantages, BlockWorks launched GovHub this week, which is the most powerful governance platform in crypto. So if you want unfair advantage in governance, if you own governance tokens, you should subscribe to BlockWorks Research. (laughs) Always be selling. So so are you guys just going to be like massive delegates? Yeah. We're going to be delegates, yeah. Wow. Okay. We got some tokens we might delegate to you. Every crypto venture firm cannot be a deli- cannot be active in governance right now, um, and uh, we got you. There's a certain amount of fit. I mean, our analysts they only check, they only like keep up to date with like three, three, three protocols at a time. Like they are so in the weeds with this stuff. Like they're they're the ones that you'd want to delegate to. So don't govern too hard. You and Nate might be seeing each other at some point. Oh boy! All right, just to just to end this on a, a more uplifting note, like a funny story of the week. I don't know if you saw that uh, Pornhub pulled out of Utah. Did you guys see this? Oh, I I saw the headline because of the KYC stuff. So Pornhub. Why do you think Vance? Why do you think Vance just left Utah? The guy was there for like six weeks. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> Show us your tabs. <laughs> Show us the tabs. All right, everyone. Hope you have a good uh, good rest of your week. Good Friday, and I'll see you guys next week.